90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you doing? Uh, pretty well. How about yourself? Oh, pretty good. We're, we're here in the new year by accident. <laughs> Aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> Look, if we didn't talk so much, we wouldn't have this problem. It's true. So we get a certain amount of upload space for this show every month on our servers. And last month, because we had long shows and five weeks, we went over. So we're here on January 1st. <laughs> uh, nothing like curing your hangover with some science, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully the new year went well, because we're obviously recording this before the new year. Mm -hmm. And we'll have another new show for you on this coming Friday. But... But Shannon, what did you come up for us to talk about this week? Uh, so listener Steve has been writing in and asking to include some native science in this podcast, which, you know, we've talked about a little bit, but um, I think you won't let me do it because you're afraid I won't stop talking about it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so in my intro geology class, I had my students do an assignment that I usually have my native uh, science students do. And it's writing about their their place, like the place that to them is, you know, the thing that ties them to the earth, essentially. And one of the students wrote about something I'd never heard about, and I got super excited and went further into detail about it. And that is Enchanted Rock State Park in Texas. And I have never heard of this before. Nope. <laughs> Me neither. And after researching it, I'm super sad that I haven't heard about it um, before. But it is super awesome, as you'll tell over the next five hours that I'm going to talk about it. <laughs> so where in Texas is this park? So it's the it's in the Texas Hill Country, but if you don't know where that is, it's west of Round Rock or west of Austin, right? Um, and it is this big, large granitic dome just in the middle of the countryside. Um, it's an earth cache, if you're into that stuff. I just really learned about this in the last year. I don't know if you know what that is. Is it like a geocache? It is, but they're just locations. So instead of something being hidden, it's like interesting geological outpost sort of things. Oh, okay. Yeah, so Enchanted Rock is an earth cache. And it's not, I mean, it's the Texas Hill Country, so if you haven't been down there, I mean, it's not exactly flat. So why does this thing, Enchanted Rock, even unique in the Hill Country? And it's pretty big, is one of the reasons. <laughs> yeah, so we're looking at something like 640 acres yeah. Above ground and 62 square miles below ground. I know. Uh, I hated, how, how's that for I hated units? That. I hated that dichotomy. I meant to, uh, I meant to change that before we... Uh, <laughs> right. So, um, I don't know. When I think of Texas, I always just think of uh, lots of sedimentary rocks. And um, this yes. isn't. So, like I said, it's a large granitic dome. And it rises, Enchanted Rock itself, there's actually a bunch of little domes around the same area. Um, the land was originally bought by the Nature Conservancy like 50 years ago and then gifted to the Texas State Park Service. Um, but this one dome, Enchanted Rock, the biggest one, rises 425 feet above the ground. Um, in the middle of Texas, the elevation is 1825. So it's pretty high up there. And as you just said, it goes really far <laughs> under the ground because generally these big granitic domes aren't just by themselves. Right, and so when you get these big emplacements of igneous rock, it's called a batholith, right? 
Right. So a singular one of these guys, if Enchanted Rock was just what we saw at the surface and maybe a little bit more underground, it'd be a pluton. So just a tiny emplaced igneous body. When you get a bunch of plutons together, you call it a batholith because we have to name things 500 times, right? Right. And (laughs) if you were talking to a structural geologist about this, they would say that it is a subaerially intruded igneous body. (laughs) Yeah, you're welcome. That is exactly right. Um, so these things, In other words, underground, yeah. molten rock squirted in and cooled. Yes, exactly. That is exactly what it is. And this can be anywhere underground. I actually tried to, I read quite a few scientific papers, not just the, the fun wiki article about Enchanted Rock, trying to figure out the depth. And that's actually kind of hard to do, I think. And so I couldn't figure out the depth that it was emplaced at. But obviously it was really far down. And we know that because the crystals in this pluton and the whole batholith are big so it took them a long time to cool so we know they had to cool way deep down right so if you have a molten mass and it cools very quickly you get small crystals and the larger crystals result from this slower cooling so doing some uh, heat transfer estimates you can actually try to figure out how fast this thing was cooling down at what depth it was in place and so on but it is a little bit of a you know, we, we do things in order of magnitude when you're doing that kind of thing. <laughs> right, exactly. So, you know, it's one to 200 kilometers down. <laughs> no, that's um, by a factor of two. That's pretty good. Right, yeah, that is true. <laughs> um, so this guy, um, the whole uh, the whole batholith actually takes its name from en- Enchanted Rock. So this one big piece. So the Enchanted Rock batholith, it was intruded into... This really tightly folded metamorphic complex. And everything I read about this metamorphic complex that was already there is that it's really structurally messed up. Like, really messed up. So that makes me want to see it even more. (laughs) So squished, folded, faulted, Mm -hmm. all that good stuff. Yeah. Right, exactly. So lots of really impressive folds. And then in that tightly folded complex that was being highly compressed at the height of that regional compressional event, so whatever tectonic squeezing was happening there that's when the enchanted rock batholith got squirted in if you will (laughs) and that that happened about 815 million years ago okay so it's not that long ago really no i'm no and lots of things say a billion years but you know 200 million years even in geologic terms that's that's something to pay attention to so 815 that's the middle of the precambrian it was a while ago yeah yeah all right. So then looking at these batholiths, this is where something that, you know, geophysicists would come in and they would have, uh, you know, you do seismic surveys or you would do, I suppose you could do a magnetic survey and try to model it. Uh, yeah, again, think... there's a lot of trade-offs there, but you could do it. Exactly. Depending on what kind of, because if you've got this, I guess it depends on what is in the pluton and what's in that metamorphic complex. Because if they were close enough, you probably wouldn't be able to tell them apart, but yeah, and then you've got the trade-off of, especially with magnetics and gravity, some of these more non-unique methods with depth and size. Right. So unless you can constrain one somehow, you know, from, say, a seismic uh, velocity survey, so where's the seismic mm-hmm. velocity change, or maybe from uh, a powerful GPR survey. Right. And since both the metamorphics and the pluton are at the surface, you can directly measure them, which is a big help when doing gravity or velocity surveys right because i know that's sometimes we're just guessing (laughs) (laughs) 
But then, I mean, looking at these things, if you were to imagine being able to strip all the earth away, you wouldn't just see a big column of rock, right? Right. So these batholiths spread out a lot. Um, it's one of the reasons there's a big batholith out west, the Sierra Nevada batholith, which is part of the reason that area is so high. Um, and, and that's in a lot of other places, too. So these kind of, they're kind of blobs, really. And their shape, not just their, their vertical shape, but definitely their horizontal extent can tell you a lot about the tectonics of the region when it got squirted in, right? Right. So what the, what the primary stress direction was like, so what mm-hmm. the orientation of the maximum stress was, whether it was a period of compression or tension, all these kinds of things. Right. And so <laughs> I thought this was great. I found this in a couple of papers. The enchanted rock batholith is pear-shaped. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a big pear-shaped blob of molten rock that got squirted into this other really messed up rock and cooled down over a long time. Um, and the cooling is pretty neat in terms of, I'm going to keep using the word squirt. It seems so wonderfully scientific. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of the squirting mechanism, Enchanted Rock has four concentric rings of igneous rocks of different textures and compositions, and including a really large chilled margin area. And this is really cool. Without going into super detail, this is really neat that you can see this. Yeah, so I don't know that I've ever really seen this concentric cooling before. Uh, so there's a... in, in the rings, anyway. Right. So there's a really in-depth paper from back in the 50s when a lot of cool field uh, studies were done that shows these concentric rings. And I'm not an igneous petrologist as well as not a mineralogist. But you can tell in there that there are different compositions. So as the first wave got intruded, it changed the nature of the magma, right? Because you're crystallizing a bunch of different stuff. And so now the rest of the molten rock is depleted in that. And so the next injection that comes in is going to have a different mineralogy. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So it, it does this at least four times. And then the chilled margin, I just think that's cool because when you emplace these things, you're emplacing them into rocks that are already there, right? And so, right, right you get contact metamorphism because you have, you know... 1800 degree magma coming in and going up against really cold rocks. And so you melt some of the country rock that's already there. And there's a chilled margin all the way around there where you can see that the rocks that were already there got melted when the enchanted rock batholith got squirted in. Yeah, so you burn and bake the stuff that yeah. you touch. Mm-hmm. Yep, basically. And it just seems like a really neat natural laboratory of um, batholith intrusion. So... Now it's at the surface, whereas back then it obviously wasn't. Right, right, definitely. Yeah. So another cool thing about these is they're cooling, and as they're cooling, the rock's contracting, and this imposes stresses in the internal structure of the rock. Right. And you've got to imagine this is happening, you know, we don't know exactly how far, but really far beneath the earth. And so over time, geologic time, lots of stuff starts to happen. During the Cretaceous, so many, many years later, right, like 700 million years later, this area of Texas, the Llano Uplift, which I'm sure lots of people are familiar with, so it began to uplift. And as you do that, 
you get stripping away of all the stuff that's on top of this batholith. So not only do you have it cooling and contracting and doing all this internal stress stuff, as you start to strip away the sediments on top of it, you're basically unloading it. And that granite starts to say, oh, thank God, (laughs) this billion years (laughs) of sediment is gone. And it kind of starts to dome up and expand. Right. Yeah. And you get all kinds of weird, brittle processes. Right. Exactly. And so that's where the term, and you'll see this a lot, even if you go to the park, um, exfoliation dome, because that exfoliation is these, is the brittle processes that are occurring to it, right? It's kind of shedding off its layers like an onion. Right. And so you see these uh, long running cracks and thin pieces of the rock popping off. Or thin comparatively. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> Some of them are really, really thin anyway, not even just compared to the miles of granite below. <laughs> right. So these would be pretty much a, a sheet fracture. Right. And they're horizontal. And it's just, if you can imagine this big dome of rock getting uplifted and just shedding its layers. And it's those horizontal fractures that you see. And it's cool. I was actually just in southern Oklahoma looking at the Tishomingo granite, which is going undergoing these same processes. And we went down into a quarry, and you could see these big horizontal fractures that just go through the whole thing. And they were talking about, you know, that's unloading. So as this granite gets brought to the surface and all the weight is gone off of it, just starts to pop. Now, the Tishomingo granite itself, though, is one of the older outcrops in the Midwest, right? Yes, yeah, and that's... I actually don't know the exact age, but it's on the order of billion year. Right. So, yeah, it's a, it's really old. It's, uh, it's so beautiful, but that's a whole nother. <laughs> <laughs> I don't love igneous rocks, but that one is really pretty. <laughs> right. <laughs> I imagine this one is pretty as well if I actually get there, which after this show, I really want to go now. <laughs> right. All right, so you get this unloading and this flicking off of rock, but... I've never seen it happen before. Have you? Well, no. And so you see these big, if you go out to Colorado or any place where there's a lot of granitic basement exposed, you see these big round boulders. And this is part of that onion thing, right? This is just how these things weather. But when we talk about weathering and stuff, I never think of it as a process you can really, with the exception of like landslides, that you can actually see. But it turns out (laughs) this exfoliation, you can see it in action. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely seen the results, but I've never seen it in real life happening. Right. But somebody has, and they put it on YouTube. <laughs> I know. <That's> a, <laughs> you love YouTube. Um, so there's a YouTube video, and we've linked it in the show notes, obviously, from the Twain Heart Dome. And this is out in the Northeast. It's only a minute long. We're going to wait for you to click on this <laughs> and go watch it <laughs> before you come back here, because it's going to help explain some stuff later on that we're going to talk about. Have you clicked yet? I okay, hope so. <laughs> so we're gonna hope that you went and watched that video and are now back with us. Wasn't that amazing? <laughs> I love it. And if you get stuck, which I'm sure some people did, looking at the other videos on there of the Twain Heart Dome, um, you can actually see the different people videoing it, that same event from different locations. And that's just unbelievable to me. A student pointed this out to me, and they're like, "We can watch this happen." And we pulled it up in class, and I think I watched it like ten times. It was so neat. <laughs> Yeah. So there were there were a lot of people there because, as people that listen to the show know, geotourism is a thing. 
Right, exactly. Um, and that sounds like a super made-up word that's very modern. But it's not just modern tourists. I mean, ancient people as well were drawn to specific geological areas for the exact same reasons we are, with the exception of the gift shop, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But, um, and so that means that these geologically interesting places draw people to them. And they're usually geologically interesting because of either the unique composition of the rock or the unique geological process that formed them, which is what makes them interesting to us. They're different than the surrounding stuff. Right. So these are places like Arches National Park, Devil's Tower, the Grand Canyon, Zion, that kind exactly. of thing. And in all of those places, there are stories from the indigenous peoples there. You know, many of these places are also sacred places to the indigenous peoples of the area, whether they've moved on or whether they're still there. So by going back into history, not geologic history, but our history, we can look at indigenous people's stories about these features. And they're generally stories, <laughs> mostly origin stories of the features um, in the oral histories that the people of the area have. Right. And so this is one of those things that I never was good at. It reminds me of high school English <laughs> and talking about symbolism and something that I just never really was that great at understanding. Right. And I think in the Western sciences, we're really bad at this because we don't, we see this as something esoteric and that has no intrinsic value, which hopefully the fun paper will fix that if you think that. Um, right. <laughs> but this is the whole basis of the class that I teach, which is called Native Science and Earth Systems. And what we do is we look at these stories, and these stories are great. You can take them at face value and just say, okay, that's a great story. Usually there's a little bit of a moral lesson in there too. And you'll see these when you go to the national parks or state parks. They'll often have these stories recreated, either orally recreated or written down. And you're like, okay, that's a cool story. But if you dig a little deeper into the story, nearly 100% of the time, you can find a science lesson there too. Right. <laughs> and it, it might be a little bit harder, especially for, you know, lab-coded Western scientists to do this. But it's definitely worth it because... It's, it's like the original, it's kind of like what we're trying to do with this podcast. It's like the original bringing science to everyone, right? Right. I mean, there are experts in this stuff, but if you tell this story in a way such that everyone understands it, you're giving everyone a sort of origin of this cool geologic place and this little morality lesson, which maybe as Western scientists, we should think a little bit more about too. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> But so th this th this rock, I mean, being called Enchanted Rock, that sounds like the beginning of a story right there. Oh, right. Exactly. <laughs> so there are a lot of indigenous tribes in this area. And this is also true of many of these um, geologically interesting places is that they were used as meeting points. There were places all over Yellowstone that were meeting points for many tribes. But in this area, there was the Tonkawa, the Comanche, the Apaches, and that's just to name a few. And they've been in this area for over 12,000 years. And, of course, they have a lot of stories about this area. It's geologically interesting. It's one of the highest points around. And, I mean, think back to that video that we just watched. What did you hear? There was a lot of weird sounds coming from the rock for sure <laughs> exactly so that's in broad daylight standing on top of this rock and after we have you know 
8,000 geologic papers about exfoliation domes. But before that, imagine you're out on this rock and you see pieces of it flying up into the air. Or you hear popping noises coming from far away and say it's the middle of the night. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like ghosts to me. <laughs> exactly. Hence <laughs> enchanted rock. <laughs> um, so all the tribes really have these ghost stories about that enchanted rock is haunted by spirits. Okay. Um, okay. Which, yeah, I can see that. Exactly. It makes total sense. So you hear this and you're like, enchanted rock. Okay. Haunted by spirits. Whatever. If you hear that at face value, it's an interesting story. But if you think about the geologic processes that are going on there... It makes 100% sense, right? Right, yeah. The one that might be a little bit harder, and this is an explanation I found, and I don't know, I feel like it's a stretch, but I could also see it too. Um, there's a lot of legends about ghost fires that appear at different parts of the dome, especially after the rain. Hmm. Yeah, and so one of the explanations is that in these really big, coarse-grained, uh, granites. And if you live anywhere near one of these things, this happens in the Wichita's too. You can get these really large feldspar crystals and their faces are just perfectly flat. And I mean, they're big. You can get centimeters, several centimeters across. And so the explanation for this is that these wet feldspar crystals in the moonlight or the starlight would appear to twinkle like fires. Yeah, I don't know about that one. I don't know about that one either. <laughs> Maybe that one is really spirits, I guess. Well, I was trying to think about other processes that could be going on, but I I can't come up with any way to get any kind of flammable gas out of this thing. Uh, I know. Yeah, me neither. Because you're not really, it's not like it's got a lot of porosity and it's trapping gases and releasing them or anything like that. So Yeah, I mean, there's, there's some storativity in the fractures, but I don't know where the gas would come from. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I don't know. Maybe that's maybe that's something to look into, but it's also interesting. That's an interesting explanation for it. I don't believe I would have made that connection. Yeah, I don't think I would have either. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the other, and I found this story a lot too. Um, so there were indigenous people since over 12,000 years ago, but then the Spaniards came in, and this is the story all across the Southwest. And in the 1700s, they were in central Texas, and a legend told by many of the tribes is that there was a Spaniard that was captured by the Tonkawa Indians, and he escaped. And it says in all of these stories that he was swallowed by the rock and reborn as an Indian. And swallowed by the rock. Okay. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> well, if you're walking around any of these domes, there's a lot of these fractures we were talking about. And some of them can get pretty big. And there are lots of sort of nooks and crannies. It's not just this one smooth dome. And so I guess if you were seen to disappear into one of these that was unknown and then not seen to come out because he followed it and came out in another spot, that could sort of explain that too. And then the enchanted part is that he placed secret enchantments because they never found him again. So hmm. he, he placed these enchantments at the rocks in certain areas and that the popping and everything you hear is his spirit that's there. All right, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's a cooler... There's a... Go ahead. So there's actually a lot of these processes captured in these stories. Exactly. And you can do this. I mean, this is, you know, my cursory day-long, let me see about this rock that I've never heard of before. 
But in class, you know, you can do this all day. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, a lot of a lot of my stories come from the Southwest, just because that's a place that I'm interested in. I like to say it's because there's no grass to get in the way of the rocks out there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which is also true. <laughs> and there's a lot of really great um, Diné or Navajo stories and Hopi stories and all these stories of tribes that are still there um, for a lot of those really famous national parks that we go to a lot. So I could talk about Yellowstone and like the evil spirits that live there for hours because that's really interesting. (laughs) And there's also a lot of, and I know listener Steve has asked this too, there's also a lot of um, astronomy stories, especially the Diné. They had a really rich astronomical um, sort of background. And so both them and tribes in the Pacific Northwest have some really great star stories that we can incorporate um, into some of the future episodes too, I think. Yeah, I think we're going to have to go back and look at more of these stories because this is just one small example, and there's really quite a bit there. Oh, right. I mean, there's enough to teach eight classes on. Um, (laughs) So it's really great. But I want to go back, before we get to our fun paper, I want to go back to this hole that the Spaniard disappeared down. (laughs) Okay, yeah. (laughs) Because if you're around these, if you live in an area where there's exfoliation domes, if it's something that you – explore a lot, you'll notice that there are lots of, it's not this big flat surface, just like we said, there are lots of these like pits, many of which are perfectly circular. And I actually just got asked about these um, by someone that was out when we were out in the Tishomingo granite earlier. And they're just these pits that weather into these perfectly circular um, features. And they can be, you know, a centimeter across and they could be several meters across. Um, and they're really neat here, especially in Enchanted Rock. Yeah, and they, they almost don't look like natural features. No. <laughs> no, they don't. <laughs> they look like you exploded something out. But, I mean, it's a pit, right? So you got a hole, and in intro geology, that's, if you got a hole, you got to fill it up with something. Because <laughs> that's, right. what, that's what happens, right? We're trying to reach equilibrium. And so you can either fill up these holes with soil or water. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so you can have, like, plants in the soil yeah. or little bugs in the water, I would assume. Exactly. So they call them soil islands, and some of these are pretty big. There were some in the Tishomingo granite I saw that were larger, like tens of meters across. I didn't really think about them being this big. But they fill up with the soil, and they look like perfect, they act like perfect little grassland ecosystems. Hmm. And okay. people people study these because they're this encapsulated perfect ecosystem, and if they fill up with water and you're in a place that's not hot enough that it can stick around for a couple of weeks, they turn into these vernal pools. And this blew my mind. At Enchanted Rock, they have fairy shrimp in some of the vernal pools. <laughs> wow. I know. <laughs> um, I mean, all the granites I'm around, it's like a thousand degrees in the summer, so that would never happen. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) But I thought that was really cool. I'm sure this one's pretty hot in the summer, too. But I could see spring and fall, the water sticking around for a while. Right. I mean, the hill country, I think you can get pretty, pretty wet. So, but that's, uh, that's awesome. Yeah. I wonder wonder if you just rehydrate the shrimp. (laughs) 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 They come back to life. Well, I don't know. Did you have anything else about Enchanted Rock? I mean, that was just, that was the first thing. I'm sure if I go down there, I'll have lots more to say about it. But um, it's just one of these examples of these geologically interesting areas 
that have been interesting, not just scientifically, which we talked about, but also to the indigenous people of the area. And it was also scientifically interesting to them. You know, you tell these stories about spirits living in there, and that's the actual, the sounds that you hear. But there's also, if you dig deeper into these stories, um, there's also a lot more there. Um, there's science lessons, there's morality lessons, there's all this stuff. Um, and it's a really great way to sort of instantly get in touch with the land. I remember in my student's paper, he wrote about some of these stories and that was obviously something that drew him there, which is really cool. It's a cool connection to the indigenous people of the areas to, you know, ancient humans. And it hasn't really changed all that much if you think about it. Yeah, that's just really cool. And I kind of want to go down there and see it now. Mm -hmm. Me too. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to have a field trip. Yes. Yay. <laughs> And this turns out to be a very related, fun paper, though not necessarily about the Native American culture. Right. Um, so we've expanded the class, not expanded, it was kind of always taught like this. It's indigenous peoples. It's not just, I focus on the Southwest when I talk about the rocks, but I used to teach this, co-teach this with a meteorology professor, and he would talk about some of the stories of storms. And one of the really famous stories of storms um, are the kamikaze, or the divine winds, that helped save Japan from attack by Kublai Khan, not once, but twice, back in the 13th century. Yeah, and this is some, I mean, I didn't even know that kamikaze meant divine wind. What? <laughs> how many, how many, I mean, come on, Godzilla, have you never seen this? <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's surprising to me, but that is what it means. Yeah, no, no. So this paper is Depositional Evidence for the Kamikaze Typhoons and Links to Changes in Typhoon Climatology by Woodruff et al. Right. So this is a very scientific paper about a big event that has a lot of um, stories associated with it back in, I mean, ancient, the 13th century in Japan doesn't seem very ancient, really. Um, right. But back in history, right? And so Kublai Khan in the late 13th century tried to conquer Japan, and he obviously had to get there by sailing there. And this happened twice, in 1274 and 1281. And as his Mongol hordes came over, they were decimated by these two storms. And since, <laughs> I mean, this is how I would tell it too, right? Since you have this huge force coming to kill you, it gets wiped out by these two storms, really intense typhoons. They became known as kamikaze, so that they were divinely sent to protect Japan from the invasion. Makes total sense. The oh, definitely, because the odds of that seem low. Right, exactly. But what's even more interesting, and why people think this is just legend, is because this part of Japan today doesn't really receive intense typhoons. Right, so this is down the Kyushu region. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, there are typhoons that come by, but not typhoons that would do this kind of damage. Um, and we definitely don't have any since, I don't know, when did they say? Since the, the 1945, the best data set, they've only received um, one Category 2 event, and they haven't received any that were greater than a Category 3 event in Imari Bay since 1945. So... People were like, ah, this was just legend. Something happened. But these geologists 
went to say, no, we can probably figure this out, right? And there's some fortuitous geography <laughs> that made figuring this out possible. Yes, so there's a small, just inland lake that they were able to go and do some coring in. Right, and because this is a lake and it's freshwater and it's very close to the sea but not connected to it, um, there's a lot of geochemical stuff that you can do to tell sediments from the ocean versus sediments from freshwater, which is generally the thought. So this really decimated the Mongol invasion, their forces. I mean, there's wrecks everywhere. And so it had to be a big storm. And if it was a big enough storm, you would think that you would have seawater inundating this lagoon. And therefore, you should be able to see this in the sediment record. Right. And another convenient thing about this little lagoon is that if you look at the depth map, the deep parts of this are three or four meters. Right. <laughs> so we're not talking about you got to get a, a big ship and do some deep water riser drilling operations. Right. We're talking about you can go out here in a relatively small boat with a piston core and do this. Right. Just and just throwing it over the edge and getting that. Um, and so this was sort of, this was done before, but they couldn't really pinpoint that there were two different storms um, in that time period, right? Um, and this this lake has been around for a long time. It was part of its own legends. And so they thought this should be, this should be somewhere in the data. And so by doing this really in-depth geochemical modeling, and they did a lot of um, pretty cool x-ray stuff too, um, they were able to pinpoint with more certainty, the ages of these sedimentary layers. Right. So they went in and they sampled this core for a lot of things. Well, the, the x-ray is obviously a very dense sampling. Yeah. But when they actually would take samples and do, you know, like a burn-off test to see how much uh, organic content was in it, that was done every centimeter along the core. And these are several meter long cores. So that's quite a bit of work. Ah, uh, yeah. Thank God for graduate students. <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> um so since i just said since 1945 you know they've got really good data and so they they were able to tie some of these big typhoons typhoon gene which i think we even talked about when we talked about hurricanes um in 1965 they were able to tie that time to some of the deposits and they could tell so this is fairly recent near the top of the core they could tell that they had higher strontium in that clastic deposit, so strontium occurs more frequently in ocean water, so marine-sourced stuff has high strontium levels, and so right. they knew that there was incursion from Typhoon Gene at that time. So that's sort of just one data point that kind of proves, proves the test for the rest of the data points. Right. And so it was a nice verification, and lo and behold, looking at their data, once they got all their X-ray and X-ray fluorescence and all that data in they were able to find two separate storms in the right time period. Right. Um, so these two intense overwash events, and the lagoon is far enough back, and like John just said, you know, they took four cores throughout the lagoon. So if you're going to have an overwash event from a typhoon, it's going to be big if you're going to see it in all four cores. And so you know that that came from, you know, a storm that was capable of taking out a Mongol fleet. And, yeah, they found both of them. I mean, obviously, they don't have it pinpointed down to, you know, 1278 or whatever, but it's two fairly close together events during that right. period. 
Right. And so they they did all kinds of great, you know, they did the geophysics on the core. Before they did the cores, they did geophysics with ground-penetrating radars or lake-penetrating radar uh, <laughs> to do this. So all of that was really cool. And they found these, and they could have stopped there, but they didn't. Yeah. <laughs> and this is the part that was really cool, is they went on to try to go ahead and map out the frequency of overwash events with time. Right, exactly. And so that was part of the reason why everyone thought that this was just a story because they don't have these events now. And the the best way to invoke bad weather is good old El Nino. Yes, we come back to El Nino. <laughs> um, so this is a particularly strong El Nino during this time period, which was known before this um, from other studies. But putting this together with this one location... Now you can explain why you had so many strong typhoons in that small period of time. Yeah. And so we're not only are we learning about these two events, but we're learning about overall climatology. Uh, right. Because from they, these cores. Exactly. Because they go on to talk about typhoon frequency uh, later on and how it preferentially hits southern China and sort of away from Japan. And that's more La Nina-like conditions and less El Ninos as um, you go into like the 16 and 1700s. Right. So right back around uh, 1000, you know, that shows they're looking at eight or nine overwash events per century. <laughs> and now here in the modern, we're looking at less than one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This was super, if, if that's all they were talking about, not even this sort of tying back into the kamikaze like, that's a really cool study in oh, itself, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, but going back and tying this with these, you know, supposedly mythical stories, you know, this is why I don't like to call any of the stories that I talk about in class. I don't like to call them myths because that implies that they're false, you know, that there's no truth in them. And almost every single one has some kind of, you know, environmental geologic truth in them. And this is such a cool explanation of that. Uh, yeah, definitely. And it's also, you know, it's just a really, I'm not going to say simple study because the analyses <laughs> that they did were not. Yeah. But overall, if you look at it, you go to this lake, you take these four cores, and this pops out of it without a lot of really... Hand waving, arm waving, we'll say. Elegant, you can call it. It's elegant. elegant. There you go. That's yes. the, that's the perfect word for this yeah. study. It was a very elegant study. Exactly. And unfortunately, this guy's behind a paywall, but there's a lot of um, press out there. So we linked in some uh, some of those press sort of releases about it because it's so great. This is a really neat paper. Yeah, it's in geology, and sometimes those are hard to find. Yeah. But mm -hmm. <laughs> I'll I'll check and see if somebody's got it on ResearchGate or something. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Yes. All right, well, that was your Fun Paper Friday. I thought that was a really great one and one that tied into the show really well. Yes, it did. I was very excited about that. <laughs> <laughs> if you have an idea for a fun paper that you'd like us to talk about or some feedback for us, we'd love to hear from you. Don't forget you can use the audio memo feature on your phone and record an audio comment for us and send that in as well. Shannon, how can they do that? Send us those audio comments, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com or your regular old email comments. That's fine, too. <laughs> um, check us out on our website, don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo, 
at geo underscore Lehman and at Shannon Doolin. And you can always hang out with us when we're sitting on our computers, which John does more than me on our swung <laughs> chat room, swung.rocks on the Don't Panic channel. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.